This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. Also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Today's guests on the Music Buzz Podcast are Jim Babjack and Dennis Dyken of the Smithereens. Founded in New Jersey in 1980, the Smithereens have been creating, electrifying original rock and roll for 42 years. Their take-no-prisoners sound reflects their Garden State roots and has resonated with fans worldwide over the course of 17 albums and 2,500-plus shows. With the 2017 passing of their singer, Pat Denisio, the surviving members have persevered and carried on with their shared musical legacy, using guest vocalists such as Robin Wilson of Jim Blossoms and Marshall Crenshaw, both who have joined us on Music Buzz in the past, and they continue to entertain rock fans all over the world. Um, so welcome to the Music Buzz Jim and Dennis. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Hello. That sounds great. That resume there. Yeah. You got. You guys are impressive. I mean, you know, if nothing else, I mean, we, we, we knocked that out at the top. So, you know, we'll see you guys later. <laughs> Good talk. So, uh, well, what I wanted to say to both of you guys is I, I kind of did a, I, I dove around to, to listen to a lot of stuff that was, and Jim, your, your record that's called Buzzed Mag. Yeah. That I just went through and listened to the little trailers that you have on, on the Smithereens website. Man, that's wow. Is all I can say. That's a killer record. There wasn't one thing on there that I didn't just go, "Oh, I love this." I and I hate everything. <laughs> but it's great. That's great. No, it's killer. That's great. And Dennis, you're you're playing drums on it too, right? I think I'm not on all of them, but I'm not on all of them. Maybe Most of them. A third or a half, something like that. Well, it's it, the production sounds great. Sonically, it sounds wonderful. The tunes are great. I I can't wait to get it. I mean, I want to. I want to hear the whole thing. Our listeners need to check that out. Uh, Jim Babjack's Buzz Meg. And Dennis, I, I checked out your stuff too, your Bell Sound stuff, Bear in mm -hmm. My Garden. Great, man. I love it. Thank you very much. I love the long coda at the end. It just keeps growing, and it's really cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Bell Sound stuff, I listened to I found a couple other songs. Standing in that line, very kind of pet sounds, uh, Beach Boise. Great, man. The Sun's Going to Shine in the Morning. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Great songs. Thanks. Everybody should be checking these out. Dennis Dyken and Bell Sound. And uh, the other thing that I really dug, because I, I did a record uh, in 2020 that was uh, Songs from Isolation. It was about the pandemic during the pandemic. It was kind of a musical about the pandemic. And John Sebastian was played on four songs. So somehow the Butchie's Tune thing came up. Man, great job on that. Nice. Thank you. That was uh, one of the great moments of my life, really. It really, truly was. Of course it was. I mean, John Sebastian's right there next to you. I mean, it looked really great. I mean, it, it was it was very cool. That song is one of my favorite songs of all time. 
and to have to have the opportunity to do it in that setting was uh mind blowing the other real cool moment during that show was uh getting to play washboard with john sebastian what song was that on well it's not time now from the daydream record yeah that part of your normal percussive arsenal or is it something you just naturally had an affinity for well you know jimmy and i had a joke band in high school along with mike our bass player um I used to go to Sam Goody's and buy cutouts. Sam Goody's was an uh, East Coast record chain. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. And um, they had sometimes like records for 49 cents. I bought yeah. a lot of them like that. Right. And that's, I discovered uh, the Jim Queskin, the first jug, the first Jim Queskin jug band album, which I just love. And uh, I, I found myself, uh, I found that it was easy to get into because I was really, really steeped in the spoonful. So, um, I wanted to hear from whence that came. So obviously Jim Queskin, you know, uh, appropriating the same roots. But I did find another LP at the library in Carteret, New Jersey, called Jugs, Washbands, Washboards, and Kazoos. And it was an RCA compilation that had the real deal, like the Memphis Jug Band on it. I'm not sure if Gus Cannon was there, but uh, I just eat that stuff up. I, I, I love it to pieces. Your band have a, a single string bass? No, we didn't have a bass. Mike, Mike played spoons at the time. Okay, he, I in the '60s I was a huge fan of of uh, Spoonful and the Zombies. Almost yeah. as a as a match set, they were both uh, speaking to me at the time. Oh uh, yeah, no argument here where those two bands are concerned. You know, not at all. It would um, appear a, a, a you know a faint affinity for what's their name, the Beatles, <laughs> the Ruddles. Yeah, yeah, man, you guys. I, not, not to dwell on this because it's such a, you know, it is a obviously a, a, a tangential work of love on your part, but I listened to Meet the uh, Smithereens and wow, I mean, it was really good. I love Don't Bother Me, this guy. It won't be long. That was really good. Um, those, those tracks really spoke to me, but you clearly, you know, you clearly love those guys. And it shows in your harmonies too, on your own music. And, you know, I, I love mono mixes. I really do, but I also... I'm not a purist. I, I love the stereo mixes as well. That's where we learned to sing harmony, to pick apart isolated vocal tracks or learn to play guitar licks or, or, or drum feels. It was from the stereo recordings where you could really delve into. Drums were over really here and yeah. made it easier to hear that stuff. I was really impressed with the Lost album. I went through and listened to uh, as much of that as I could today. There's not a bad song on there. So I want to encourage our listeners to check this record out. Right off the bat, Out of This World, killer. Loved it. Don't Look Down had kind of a Nuggets kind of a groove to it. Nice riff. A World Apart, you know, and I love the way, you, and you guys have always done this, where you'll do something kind of heavy and dark and then something kind of light. and Oh, okay. Take you back <laughs> to a different place. And A World Apart does that on there. And the major, the I love the bass, just walking down the scale, that one section. And mm -hmm. then going into Stop, and, and I, whoever organized the record, it, going into Stop Bringing Me Down, which is the heaviest tune on the record, and maybe my favorite one, because that kind of rolls on longer than you guys usually do. And, man, it's cooking. You're the last couple minutes, you guys are just, you know, sounds like you had a couple beers, and let's just, just beat the shit out of this thing. Yeah, it's really great. I love it. We did have beers, yes. <laughs> we did have <laughs> beers. Well, good. And then after that, 
and it, it took some balls. And I saw, oh, Monkey Man. Oh, uh, I wonder if they, is this the, but it wasn't. But it's a smoking hot tune. I love the riff. It's, it kind of reminds me of, uh, it, it, the first thing I thought of was the lower Lola versus Power Man record, the heavy tunes on there that Dave did, uh, which I'll come back to. Huh? Like rats. rats. Rats or Power Man, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it that song holds its own against the other Monkey Man for sure. It's really great. So the Lost album was recorded in 1993, correct? Yep, that's right. And I was reading about it too and listening to it. Take us back to that time a little bit. Like, have you have you revisited that over the years? Like, oh yeah, I go back and listen to it, or was it one of those things you came back to relatively recently, and just kind of rediscovered yourselves? Was it one of those things you always felt like you had in your back pocket, kind of thing? I just love to kind of hear the, you know, just kind of your process with it over the years. You know, as it kind of sat out there, and you you obviously knew about it, but it was in, you know kind of in the drawer for a long time, right? Well, there, there's a, there are a lot of tapes that we have, uh, so. It wasn't really a back pocket thing. Uh, Dennis, I, I don't know when you when we started talking about it. Uh, I suppose it was after Pat passed away because uh, I was looking at uh, my old demos also because we we're going to start working on a new album also with Robin Wilson and with Marshall Crenshaw. You know, uh, as far as melodies and songs, yeah, we have them in our back pocket. They just need to be finished. And then uh, I discovered this tape, and I called Mike up and, and Dennis, and uh, and Dennis had the, the original DAT tape for it. So, Dennis, you want to continue this uh, thread? When we cut this batch of songs uh, in 93, we were between labels, and we were self-producing ourselves, and we had a lot of material. We actually recorded two albums worth of uh, stuff, and we... After we finished this uh, particular project, fairly soon after that, we signed with RCA. So we had to uh, decide what material we we're going to record. And 12 of the tunes that we had cut during this period of the Lost Album ended up being re-recorded for our LP, uh, A Date with the Smithereens. We did that in late 93. It came out in early 94. So these were, you know, you could call them leftovers, I suppose, but... Uh, I like leftovers. I'm going to have some for dinner. We just virtually heated them up. That's what I mean about having them in your back pocket. And I know you said no, but they're so good. I'm kind of like, gosh, you know, where, where were these? Did you guys just completely forget about it? You know what I mean? Because they're so good. So that's why I kind of was curious. We do have a lot in our in our archives, and um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But that was the probably the most realized of the unreleased stash. Um, it All we needed to do was sequence those tunes, master them, come up with a cover. You know, And Mike wrote a really, I think, poignant uh, essay that's in the package too, that it uh, captures the mood and, and the conception and everything about that record. I, I highly recommend people read his essay in there. It's very, very good. Is that on your website too? when I was reading, or is that just a small part of it, maybe? Small part of it, I think. Yeah, it's inside the booklet, or the inside the, the CD uh, gatefold, or mm. whatever you call it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because you think back, you know, to 1993, I mean, this, the, as we all remember, the amount of music that was being released during that time, and the quality was so amazing, right? I mean, 
early 90s through mid 90s in particular. For those of our listeners that may be younger that weren't around at that time as much, I mean, the Smithereens, uh, you guys are a band that was, uh, even Kurt Cobain said he was influenced by you guys. Right. How does, you know, you hear something like that. I mean, I'm not surprised by it, especially when you hear your, your tunes and hear, hear Nirvana, but as time goes on, I mean, you guys have got to look back and when you hear stuff like that, you got to pinch yourself a little bit, right? And just that kind of influence that you guys had on on somebody that's had such a such worldwide phenomenon, if you will, as, as, as Nirvana was and, and Cobain was. Did you guys have any relationship there at all with that band? Only with uh, Butch Vig, because uh, before we left Capitol Records, Butch Vig was telling us all this, and I had never heard it before, so he was telling us that during Nevermind they were A-being our records and trying to get that guitar sound that I had. And the, we, we uh, used Butch Vig for a, a Christmas song. One of the last things we did for Capitol Records was uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a promo radio thing, which I hear in the supermarkets around the holidays. Um, so we were kind of testing Butch Vig out because uh, he was uh, considered to be our next producer. Yeah, it all, all was great until, uh, you know, we parted ways and then we never got to work with Butch. Well, no, we, we never did cross paths with Nirvana. We never met. But uh, we, were not, we were delighted to see that in his own handwriting that was reproduced in, I guess, uh, his journals, that he talks about listening to us. Uh, I think there was a mixtape or a list of song uh, records he was listening to, and especially for you, was among them. It's almost hard to fathom that uh, we're the band that some people are citing as influences or that we have so much meaning in their lives. It's, I know it's real because we meet these people and they very sincerely express that to us. But when you're in the eye of the storm, you know, it's, it's not always, like Jimmy says, you go to the grocery store or you go to the post office. You, you're just doing your daily thing, and then you stop and you meet somebody, and they tell you about. And I'll tell you. So in the New York, New Jersey area, we have um, a bunch of drummers get together. And Dane, if you're ever in town, well, we do it in Zoom. You could join us if you want to join the Zoom. We used to do it in person. I'll, I'll put your. I'll get your email. I'll put it on the chain. Um, so we get together. Uh, it was in person for uh, up until COVID, and we we just go to lunch and just BS and talk about our careers or lack thereof and um there's a younger guy rj rabin is his name he's a great drummer and a fabulous dude and uh i don't know he might be 10 years younger than me and he reveres me so much just because of the uh nirvana connection <laughs> like like he's a good friend of mine but still he, he has this certain sense of uh, awe <laughs> When yeah, we sure. talk, and it's funny because I I don't I hardly ever think about that aspect of our sphere of influence. You know? That speaks to your character too. I mean, you're too busy, yeah. to, you know. And and there, like you said, there are two levels. There's there are the people that find your music and it has meaning to them as listeners, but it must be exponentially more gratifying to not only find that some of those people are notable musicians, peers, and supergroups that have listened to you and been influenced by you. That's that's a whole other step, is being the influencing um, factor in a notable band. Um, that's got to be so gratifying. Well, it's, it's super cool because we grew up as fans, and we're still fans, you know? 
and we cite our influences and I we still listen I know I do I still listen to records that always turned me on to inspire me and uh, to think that I know that people are doing that with our records that's what it's all about you know and that's uh, that's so meaningful and that's yeah, it, it really is full circle. Speaking of just that, you talk about the influences, and I'm sure with your type of music, it's vast and probably too big a question to say, who are your go-to bands? Clearly Beatles, Beach Boys, you know, Spoonful and so on. But if you were to give me kind of a smattering of the people that really do speak to you consistently from history and current. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything from Prez... Prado to uh, Johnny Cash to, uh, you know, when we were growing up in the 60s, AM radio was so wonderful. You had, you know, you had country, you had surf music, you had the British invasion, you had, everything was great. Everything I heard as a kid was, I loved. And so it's, it's really, really hard to put a finger on it. My, my dad played accordion when I was a kid and my parents are Hungarian. So we'd go to these Hungarian dances and there'd be Gypsy Joe and his orchestra playing. So I, uh, I lo always loved music just, you know, and that's how it started. That's almost a Beatle answer because when you listen to what the Beatles say, they listen to, you know, Formby, George Formby, you know, singing naughty songs in the forties to the troops. Hence when I'm 64 songs like when I'm 64, you know, it's just, that becomes almost an offshoot of that style of music. Well, Ray Davies copped a lick off the guy, too. I mean, he was yeah, well, well respected man. And and in the nineteen seventies, in in uh, in the New York area, there was a revival of fifties music. So at, at Madison Square Garden, they would have Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, you know, and and they had these big shows. And so I went back uh, and. Um, started listening to Buddy Holly and El Elvis and all that the older stuff. So we really got a good education there, a good foundation for songwriting and for playing and where things came from, you know, and so Dennis important. and I, Dennis was my, when I first met Dennis, we were freshmen in high school and this goes back to 1971. And at that time I had maybe 10 records but uh, Dennis turned me on to uh, so many different types of music and bands. And then um, we lived so close to New York. We were only 20 miles away where we grew up. And we used to take the bus in the summers uh, into New York and go record shopping in, the, in Greenwich Village and, and all over the place. And that's how we ended up with our collections at the time. You know, you just go on kicks of, of listening to some of your favorite stuff. I've been on a real Gene Pitney kick of late. I, you know, because I really just worship some of his records. Like, it hurts to be in love and I'm going to be strong 24 hours from Tulsa. You know, because he had great writers, Backrack David and Nielsen Dak, all the man in wild. And I, I really love the Jive Five. Did, uh, I, mean, I just love the Jive Five. Uh, you know, what time is it? My true story. I'm a happy man. These are, I'm just, these are just, you know, things. The Skyliners are, are really big with me. Um, since I don't have you uh, was their big hit, but they made another record called Lonely Way, which you may or may not know. No. Um, 
did Guns N' Roses remake that song that you mentioned? Since you I know, know I have you, you know, I think they did. Yeah, which is they a really did. Odd, right? An odd, um, <laughs> yeah. odd choice. Yeah. Great you songs. guys both. Do you still have your record collections? Sure, absolutely. Me too, man. Except the ones my kids have gotten a lot of the good ones, but <laughs> yeah. When I, everybody I else was everybody else was getting rid of their stuff and uh, look at these CDs, man. I'm going. Uh, I'm hanging on to mine. I oh, had yeah. three. Th I had three thousand at one time. I still Probably have about, them, you know. and uh, I, and the CDs too. I I, I got them too, man. <laughs> didn't give up anything. No. Never. Nope. When all that digital stuff goes away, I still got the hard copy over here. There's a new artist called Nick Freighter from Britain that I really like. I, I can go on, you know, we could do a whole podcast about this, the records that we love. Matter of fact, I do have a weekly streaming show on WFMU.org, and I just, you know, play all the stuff I dig. So, WFMU. Well, I've got one, I got one thing I want to mention before we go any further is you know my favorite band i mean this is what a nerd i am i've got kinks dolls next to where's where i mix records here <laughs> in my studio so i got uh, ray and dave and one of them sour and one of them's happy imagine that um but uh so dennis you played that one gig that those guys did together in london just tell me about what that was like when when well, you know, before that, the Smithereens played with Ray and Dave in 91, I think it was, November of 91. Uh, On the which, same bill. Which we were, we were playing uh, a benefit in, at Boston Garden I don't for WBCM and, and some charity. And we got uh, word that Ray and Dave were going to be on the bill. And at the time, they were promoting the Phobia LP. And uh, it was just the two of them doing an acoustic tour. Um, so we offered our services and lo and behold, they, they said, yes. So we actually got to play. It really got me with them that night in front of this, uh, 20,000 seat, um, uh, venue, uh, that, that was extremely important to us and kind of life-changing. Um, but other bands like that, that, that are worthy of adoration i mean like the beach boys and so on the bo brummels we were the bo brummels twice right then yep really right. was sal singing yep, yeah both times oh, yeah. no shit was ron elliott playing no ron elliott no. There. one of them ron meager and the other one was uh deck, deck the one what one, yeah one was in 1985 and the other one was in the year 2000 at cave stomp and it was wonderful yeah, they made some. They made some really indelibly great records. Oh, know? I love the later stuff. I love Bradley's Barn and Triangle, or my two favorites that they did. The early stuff's good too. Triangle's fantastic. So we 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 used to play some of their songs in the early days before we were signed, and people thought they were original songs. We used to do "Don't Talk to Strangers" and uh, "Sad Little Girl," and. Uh, we didn't do the hits. We did the. the we did a song it, called "Can It Be," which is a, a, a really cool Brummel's tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that early that's from the early stuff. Yeah, that's stuff's great, man. When when you guys played that gig with the Kinks in in the night in the early nineties, did you do any of that stuff off the Phobia record, like uh, Hatred no. or, or none of that stuff scattered? No. What happened is they did. The, the plan was they uh, we met with them at Soundcheck. They were going to do their entire show. 
just the two of them. And uh, there was a shared backline for, for all the artists there. And there was a curtain. So we set up behind the curtain at our instruments. And the plan was uh, when they got to the end of Lola, the curtain rose and we did the coda of Lola. And then you really got me. Is that recorded? It is. Yeah. Matter of fact, um, the, that version of You Really Got Me appears on a compilation called Attack of the Smithereens on Capitol. Well, that's a good segue to my next uh, question. You guys were pretty kind of personality driven. You had some nice kind of overlaid kind of band photos on the covers of your albums, which was very in vogue as we transitioned from 70s through the punk era and into the 80s. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, we've got Blown to Smithereens, which is a cover I might have done. I love the boots and the smoke. That is conceptually very different from everything you've done prior to that. And then I started digging deeper and seeing Attack of the Smithereens, which almost felt like Mars Attack or Zappa's Weasels Rip My Flesh. There's something really bizarre and cartoonistic at the same time. Um, and then the, the anthology covers, they all, they all suddenly became very conceptual. How did that happen? Are you guys hands-on with all of your work from, from the original sort of band photos through to these? Or did you kind of get ideas thrown to you by the label and you would just cherry-pick your favorites? It's always been down to us. But I would say, with especially for you, I don't like that album cover. <laughs> I'll go on, on record saying that. But what we provided uh, to Enigma at the time was um, an image that eventually turned up on a picture disc of Especially For You, kind of a garish, ghoulish, uh, very colorful uh, piece of artwork. Enigma thought it, it, was, um, it would discourage impulse buying. And you know what? They might have been right. So what they did is they just uh, excerpted a little, uh, a little chunk of that artwork and turned it into what looks to me like a very bad 80s greeting card. First of all, it's a bit confusing. I mean, it's one of those covers that you might have bravely done after being hugely established, or it's a very jazzy cover. I mean, it's a bit confusing in terms of genre. It feels jazzy and certainly a little psychedelic, but I get a jazz vibe from it, and it's nowhere near as committed as a cover as the Blow Into Smithereens cover. I mean, that was brilliant. I thought that was a great, great cover. That's one that was done by Tommy Steele at uh, Capitol. Dear friend of mine, I worked with Tommy on Megadeth on so many projects when I lived in L.A. Are you in touch with him? I, I was with him when he was working on his, his Thai books. Power was kind of leaning um, uh, and, and going kind of, I don't know if they're still in that tower. I don't think Capitol is, is it? I think to some degree they are, or it's universal. I don't know. You believe he went on to other other pastures. I don't know if he went into. It's one of those things where when you go to that floor, that art floor, and and talk art with Tommy, you know, it's it's a three or four hour visit. I'm ashamed to say we haven't stayed in touch. So Tommy, if you're listening, call me. <laughs> but uh, you know, apart from blown to, I think pretty much every other, and not attack, but I think both of those are exceptions. But I think the rest of our catalog. I think the concepts came from within the band. But were executed through Tommy, yeah? Capital years, yes. Uh -huh. Well, the blow-up album was done by Saul Bass. Oh, okay, yeah. Pat and I were talking about the movie posters he did, and then we looked in the phone book, and he was in the phone book while we were recording not far away from there. We were at 
what was A&M Studios, the old uh, Charlie Chaplin Studios, but nearby Pink's Hot Dogs. <laughs> I looked them up yesterday to show my daughters. They started in 1932. Pink's on the corner of La Brea and whatever, La Brea. You know, it's funny. One, one time Dennis and I were in there and, and our, we had an autographed photo that used to be hanging in there. We were sitting right there having hot dogs and people next to us were talking about uh, how they said something about, oh, well, that's the best one here that those autographs of the, of the smithereens. And they didn't even recognize I mean, you guys that. are sitting right next to them having the dog. <laughs> do you remember that, Dan? I do. Yeah. There's been a few moments like that. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we called Saul Bass uh, from the phone book and just, you know, entertain the idea of him doing an album cover. And I think he only did one or two before that, Frank Sinatra and something else. But he agreed to do our cover, uh, which was which was amazing. Hey, a gig's a gig, you know. Yeah, yeah. right. I called Marshall Arisman, a painter who I greatly admired one time and with the remote hope that he might provide a cover. Because I don't normally art direct other people's art. I do my own images, but... I got so busy at one point, I was working with a band out of Holland called Skew Siskin. And I remembered Marshall's kind of portraits with, with these crazy metallic beaks. And Skew Siskin means crazy bird. And I thought, bird, hmm, I'll call Marshall and see. Well, he graciously did a project for me, for a cover for me. So you're right. If you have the notion to pick up the phone, sometimes you're delighted with what happens. The other interesting uh, artist connection we we made was with jack davis who did so much for mad magazine and he did our b-sides the beatles cover i think it was one of the last if not the last uh well album cover that he did before he passed he had done actually in his career he had done quite a few album covers of note best of the cow sills he did a johnny cash cover bob and ray he, he did a, a number of but we were tickled pink to have him do one for us you had a, a subscription to Mad. No, I, I went to the store and bought them. Nice. There, yeah, very cool. I have the cover right here. Yeah, we have great. hair again in this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Came back. Wow. You guys do realize that um, Indiana is the home of the four freshmen, right? I, I did, did know that. One of my so, favorite musical entities of all time. Incredible influence on Brian Wilson, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, Brian has a great quote. You know, Brian was born with a gift, of course, and his talent was always there, but it took the four freshmen to, to bring it to the fore. He had a great quote. He said, the first time I heard the four freshmen, something magic happened inside my head. And just, just hearing them unlocked all that, you know? Yeah. But the freshmen continued to be a real inspiration to me and on so many levels and and i think that the the world needs to listen to them more there's a a real calming and uh, effect they bring and there there's such a deep sense of beauty to what they did so um that's what i think of when i think of indiana not indiana wants me <laughs> lord i can't go back there <laughs> well dennis in, in the, the way you're speaking of these bands it doesn't surprise me that you you've done liner notes too right right uh, i have yeah for which beloved spoonful project oh which albums i did for daydream yeah. and hums I nice notes for those and i gotta say I, john mellencamp did the induction he to did the hall of fame yes he did and i gotta say his speech was 
so right on. I don't know. I, I, I couldn't have conjured anything better than that myself. It was just so from the heart and so just right on. He really got that band. And oh, he's a, su- he's a super fan of those guys. Yeah. I would never have guessed it, honestly. And I was delighted to see that he was and to what he, uh, he did for, for those fellas. That, that was super magnificent. John was delighted, too. We had a couple of guests on our show who I'm almost positive you guys are fully aware of. And, and one, one was Van Dyke Parks. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a pretty special guy. And Roger Manning, uh, Joseph, Roger, Joseph Manning Jr., also from Jellyfish. And, and whenever you hear that music, you know, he's completely immersed in hmm. the layering of Beach Boys, that style. Are you guys fans, fans of those guys or are they just too? I recently listened to that. Uh, I guess they did a stack of tracks version of Jellyfish. Greg, have you heard that? It's no. I, no. It, <laughs> it's pretty stunning. And Van Dyke Parks, without, without a doubt. Uh, Surf's up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. And uh, I really like Song Cycle, even though I got to be in the mood to really lay into it. But um, I, it's, I think it's great that Brian latched onto him, that Brian Wilson latched onto You're the him. only other guy other than myself that, that I know of that has ever even listened to Song Cycle. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be in the right frame of mind, so I think. I don't know it's, if you agree. I agree. But, yeah. I remember getting it. It was I couldn't ever get through it when I was young. But then I I, I learned how as time went on. The first Randy Newman record was tough too for me, and oh. then it grew on me too. But you know, not for me. <laughs> Randy spoke to me from day one. I loved him. I still. Love him. And I I read somewhere where uh, Sal Valentino dummied the vocals for the first Randy Newman record. So because Randy couldn't wasn't comfortable singing yet, and then he learned how to sing. He did his versions of Sal singing those songs because he Is was that in that for the first he, album. Yeah, he was in that loop with those guys in, right, at that course. period of time. That's I mean I, I remember reading that somewhere. I don't know if that's true or not, but isn't that a if that's true? How wild is that? I gotta look into that. A <laughs> yeah. friend of mine that used to be Randy's uh, archivist, so he might he might know or may, maybe he even has to. He might have tapes of that. <laughs> I would love to hear that, man. Yeah, so would I. You mean the the, the Randy version? I'd like to hear the Sal Valentino. No, I want to hear. I want to hear Sal. I want to hear Sal Valentino sing that stuff, man. You could do like a Nilsson sings Newman version of that album with with Sal. Come on, I'll buy that one. It always amazes me when I hear how certain musicians like Reginald Dwight. He didn't like his own voice, but as you look back over his music, anytime American Idol had an Elton John week. Everybody sounded like a Hollywood in lounge act trying to cover an Elton John song. It just doesn't work. Only Elton sing his songs well. John Lennon didn't like his own voice, which makes no sense to me. Um, yeah, there's so many people that are so good at what they do. They they have got the only voice right. And Dylan's a bit more obvious, but it's still. I got a quick question for Jim. Uh, I, I just got to make sure this is right. So you did music for. Soap operas, The Guiding Light, and Passions? Yeah, some of those songs that are on the uh, Buzz Meg record, um, uh, Lost in Love, uh, and another one, I was hooked, I was hooked up with, uh, um, um, with a programmer there, and he liked my okay. stuff. So he would use it. Uh, he, he used it maybe 10 or 15 times, you know? 
And uh, it was in the background. But anyway, it helped me in those years uh, sure. financially. I would, I would assume so. Because I, you know. Oh, those are good paychecks. Yeah, we yeah. weren't doing much at the time, you know. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's how that happened. It's, it's all who you know, really. And mm-hmm. then that, the soap operas died out, and then the whole thing died out. Now, what about? But it the, was good, good was, while it lasted, right? Well, speaking, right. where Buzz Meg came from, that title. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I just it, it was kind of a joke. Um, I'm Hungarian, and I speak Hungarian with my parents to this day. Buzz Meg spelled differently. It's in English. It's it's phonetically spelled. It's not spelled like that in Hungarian. But it pretty much means fuck it, fuck you, oh. or uh, like you could hit your your hand with a hammer and say, "Oh, Buzz Meg," you know. Oh, like, uh, okay. Or or like uh, damn it, yeah. They would yeah, but but it does mean the word buzz means to to fuck in a past tense. Uh, yeah. So yeah, have fucked. <laughs> well, I'm really glad I am. <laughs> right, I'm going to start using it. Yeah, Buzzmeg. Buzzmeg. Yeah. You mentioned well, your your dad was a, a an accordion player, right? Well, not a great one, but yeah. <laughs> but he recorded, or he played on his own. Did he ever record? No. Oh, okay. no. They just drank. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Whatever brings you together. Yeah. They they would do all Hungarian folk songs and stuff. I wanna I wanna ask this only because accordion is the instrument of the the owner of the music store where we used to always rent equipment when we were twelve and thirteen years old and aspiring musicians. Um, from Neil Peart from Rush, bless his soul, um, and us. We all grew up in the Niagara region, and a guy called Walter Ostenek um, kept winning Grammys for being the best polka accordion. I'm just curious to know if your dad ever stumbled across. No, no. But what's interesting also is that I I also, my dad made me get accordion lessons when I was seven years old. And Mike, our bass player, also was taking accordion lessons at the same time because his parents were Hungarian too. So we had the same teacher at the same time. And Mike and I went to the same uh, church. So we had our communion together in 1964. Mm. So that's how far we go back. Wow, and I great. think it gave Mike a good um, foundation for playing the bass, you know, learning to play the, the bass notes on the left hand with like a piano. So I think that kind of helped him. And it probably helped me also with melodies. It had to have helped somehow. I, you know, by 1968 I, or nine, I, I got my first guitar. And in the interim, I also played violin in ni- from 1968 to 68, 66 to 68. And then I finally was able to get a guitar. My parents would not get me one for, for the longest time. Was it conservatory violin or did you, did you happen to find people like, like um, oh, I don't know. Uh, no, it, it was just through school. It was uh, an after school program kind of thing. Scales and little melodies. and yeah. Yeah, pretty much, you know. Yeah. And then I taught myself how to play Edelweiss from The Sound of Music. <laughs> I, I played that on piano. <laughs> I, did. I I was actually born in Salzburg, Austria, so I had this connection with that movie and, and Mozart and everything. And i like, okay, I'll give that a shot. So how about the coffee business? How did you end up in the coffee business? I saw that. I have a friend. 
a, fa- a fan of ours who's been a fan since the 80s. Um, he's a coffee roaster. And about six years ago, I said to him, can you make me a, it started out as kind of a lark. I said, can you make me coffee blended with bourbon? See how that would taste. And he said, sure, I'll give it a try. It didn't, it was okay. But then he, he said, I'm going to try something else. And he made something with a rum infused flavor. And I'm like, wow, this is really, this is really good. Mm. So then I was thinking, um, oh man, you know what? I used to own a record store in the early eighties. And uh, so I thought now, how cool would it be if I opened up a coffee shop that sold vinyl records? Yeah, there you go. And then I thought, i getting too old for that kind of crap. And uh, I wouldn't have time because, you know, we have, we're busy with the band, make, you know, the So, But anyway, it turned into just an online thing. So I incorporated five years ago, I think 2017, and I only just started to sell the coffee online uh, last month or two months ago because, you know, things just get in the way. And plus, you know, the, when I when I got the LLC, the corporation, that minute, somebody already took the domain name. And I'm like, damn. So then I had to be careful of what I did first. You know, like, okay, I had to, you know, it was just crazy. The trademark. And you know, it, so it took, took five years to get to that point. And I'll be lucky if I could sell enough to make grocery money every month, but, but you know what? I love the coffee and um, people that have tried it have, have loved it. So um, it's just going to be a thing. It's just a, a side thing. So akin to hard lemonade with, with vodka or whatever, yours is a hard coffee. No, no, no. It has, you, no. That's <laughs> Damn it. I was going to start drinking that every morning. <laughs> no, that's just one of them. And then we could always add to it. I'm, I'm thinking right. that's a brilliant idea is coming up with a range of hard coffee. People often do like a little cognac in their coffee with, with, with a cream, with a clotted cream in England, for example. So yeah. if you were to a range of hard coffees, that could be a brilliant range. You know, it yeah, be- I don't think it's possible unless it was cold brew or something. Mm-hmm. And then- now, cannabis coffee could be a thing. Mm-hmm. I was just in a store passing through uh, Illinois yesterday, and uh, now they have some kind of drink. It's like an infused, like a soda that you can get stoned from. It's like, wow, that's, I wouldn't think they would have come up with that, but why not? Hey. So, so did you study piano at all? Um, apart from, uh, no, no, I have a piano in the house, but I, uh, no, I'm not, you know, I could play on my own songs if I need to add something to it. But as far as, no, I'm not very good at that, no. Have you used accordion, notably in any of your own songs? No. The accordion I had, uh, my dad lost in a poker game when I was a kid, so I never saw it again. <laughs> there, there's a song in that. <laughs> there is a song there. Yeah. My dad also had a, uh, he, in a poker game, he won a Hawaiian steel guitar. Oh, nice. oh wow. I remember it was 1963, 64. And I would just doodle around on that. And then one day it was gone. I'm like, Dad, what happened to that thing, that Hawaiian guitar? I didn't know it was called a Hawaiian guitar. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and he said, oh, I lost it in a poker game. <laughs> oh, he won it and then he Easy lost come, it. easy go, I guess. Yeah. Did, did it come with a slide? Were you aware that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I must have sounded like doo-doo, you know. Well, but, yeah. Uh, 
but I was experimenting. And as a matter of fact, when I first started playing guitar, uh, my dad came into my room and I was just fooling around. And he says, because this is when I just started. And, and he says to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to write a song. And he says, son, you have to walk before you can run, meaning I have to learn how to play other songs first. And I said, no, that's not what I want to do. That's I, so in my head already, I had this thing where I want to play what I want to play. Right. You know, and then the, the guitar teacher was teaching me like Mary had a little lamb and stuff like that. And then I'm like, fuck this, uh, you know. So I got my record player, putting the needle <laughs> back and forth, you know, till I learned how to play the intro to Ticket to Ride, and then, you know. Good for that's, you. That's how it started. One of my one of my sons is taking guitar lessons right now. I kind of had that conversation with you the other day because he's getting to the point where you can tell he's like, yeah, we're playing these same songs over and over. And I said, well, maybe you just go in there and tell him what songs you want to play. You know, he's yeah, like, well, on if top I can't of play them, like, he just doesn't okay. do it. Yeah, yeah, after a while. I mean, you got to do it. Well, I had, a, I had a piano teacher that was, you know, at the point where counter, counterpoint became part of my studies. Bach was interesting and w one of the, the, the godfathers of counterpoint. But when I brought in some some sheet music for Boogie Woogie, he kind of glazed over and said, this is really complicated. And I said, well, watch. And I played some for him. And he said, oh, let's work on this. <laughs> so I, I felt fortunate that I had parents that not only kind of pushed me in the conservatory, um, you know, rigors of conservatory, just reading the fly shit on the page. But I, I certainly was experimental, you know, speaking of uh, Edelweiss. Back in the Roger Hammerstein, um, Rogers and Hammerstein days, and so on, I, and and Henry Mancini, I would play those songs. But then in those songs, I would find chords and think, "Oh, these are great chords. These sound good." You know, all by them. Suddenly, you start extrapolating um, some of the stuff that sounds good to you, and then you sequence them and say, "Well, that's a song." You know, so I get you what take you're from it. You take from it what you want and leave the rest behind. Mm -hmm. That's how there's a chord that we use in the smithereens all the time. I don't know what it's called. It's in variation of an F and a G or something. I don't know. But it, it, I discovered it because I was trying to figure out the opening chord of a hard day's hard night. Day's night. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. And it was wrong, but we got, you know, I started using it. Well, Dennis, what was it like doing that Nancy Sinatra record? Oh, that was great. It was in Hoboken, of all places. <laughs> it was a thrill because I, I always thought she was a great artist. I thought like her records with Lee Hazelwood and uh, mm -hmm. and, and some other cuts by her that uh, were a bit overlooked. I was, I was thrilled, too. What year was that? I think it was 04. And it's funny because Jarvis Cocker uh, was producing one of, the one of the songs we worked on. And at the time, I had no idea who he was. And... Um, it was a good song and it was a good session and I look I look back on it fondly and I think that's a very good album actually it's a good artistic record she made there. Do you read charts or you just go in and, and and learn the song and play your own thing? Yeah, we just learned, I just heard it at the session and we just there was two I played on two songs and uh, cool yeah and we just uh, we just went for it awesome. and Ronnie Spector too you played with her that was something else because you talk about influences and and uh, what certain music means to you. I mean, Be My Baby in, in the late summer of 63 really opened my my mind, my ears and my mind to a whole new universe of possibilities. I, I At that point, I, I was definitely looking to uh, play drums. I was just banging around on coffee cans at the time, but uh, hearing how Blaine on that track and, and, and enveloped in all that reverb and 
ah, it was a real moment. So, and uh, getting to work with Ronnie was was a real blessing. She um, was still very vital up until the end as an artist, and uh, she she was the real deal. And it was uh, I I never took every gig. I I got up on the drum on the drums, and I never took it for granted. I always thought to myself, this is really a special gig. This is really cool. So. Yeah, I was uh, very, very sad when she passed. Yeah, her husband and son just came to see us uh, two nights ago when we played in Connecticut. Hmm. Awesome. Robin Wilson and Marshall Crenshaw. We've had both of those on, uh, those guys on the show, and they were they had nothing but great things to say about Smithereens, obviously. But um, man, talk about two great guys and two great guys to, to front your band. I mean, how did that? How did it end up that you found those two guys? Um, we are just lucky. Know them or whatever. We are lucky. Uh, We've known Marshall since 1980, 81, around that time. We opened up for him somewhere and we became friends. And he actually uh, played on some demos of ours in uh, 1982 or something like that. And uh, he uh, played keyboards on our first album on uh, Strangers We Meet. Oh, really? Okay. And, huh. and baritone guitar on White Castle Blues. Uh, so but he credited himself as Jerome Jerome on those records. So very few people knew that it was Marshall Crenshaw. So we kept in touch all this time. Robin Wilson, we had met in 1988 when we were going through Arizona. He, was, he wasn't in a band yet. He was a clerk at a record store called Zia Records in, in Tempe, Arizona, which we're playing next week in Tempe, Arizona with Robin Wilson. So that's gonna be kind of cool. So he was there as a clerk. He set up the display for our Green Thoughts records. And there's pictures of us from when he was a teenager with long hair. Before Pat died, uh, a couple of months before, we were booked to play the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. And after Pat died, it was suggested to us that we just do a tribute to Pat for that one, because the other ones we canceled. But this was local. So we, we called up everybody we knew. I, I got in touch with B.B. Buell. Uh, I don't know if you know who she is, but uh, yeah, she, uh, I know she did a version of Top of the Pops back in the 90s, and, and she just recorded Blood and Roses recently. So she came up from Nashville. We had, uh, I called up Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones, an old friend of ours, to sing a song. Uh, Richard Barone from the Bongos. Uh, so we had a bunch of people singing different songs we, we played like a four-hour show but so after the show and it was wonderful the crowd was great everybody sang great after the show both marshall and robin said if you want to ever do any shows in the future i'm there and they enjoyed it so much so that's how that all came about because we weren't really sure how we would continue because we definitely didn't want a I got a lot of messages from people saying, I sound just like Pat. And I'm like, no, that's not going to work for us. It could work for a band like Journey or something, but uh, it, we're, we're not going that route. And Marshall and Robin both bring their own thing into it. And um, that's what we want, you know. And then we also want to be able to continue with new material. So it's been working that our fans are overwhelmingly supportive. And uh, it's just been great. And, and we just played uh, 
two nights ago. I think it's cool yeah. how you guys are doing it because Robin's still, he's still with the Jim Blossoms, obviously. Marshall still does his thing. I think that's kind of why it's working. You know, it's like the, people love those guys anyway. And if you're fans of those guys and you're fans of the Smithereens anyway, right? So, but those guys were very complimentary of you guys from an influential standpoint. So we talked about Kurt Cobain earlier in the conversation, obviously, but you know, there was a lot of, a lot of guys in that generation that were clearly, you know, um, Steal, stealing things from the smithereens but i mean it's cool to see you guys you know return that favor later and have those guys singing your songs i mean they they, they make perfect sense is what i'm trying and to i say. gotta mention susan cowsill oh yeah because, yeah she is too uh, right yeah yeah she's in the mix i mean she we haven't been able to get together but it would be great to have a female vocalist on those songs so we are working on a song together also for the next album because the i met the cowsills back in 1992 when we were recording the blow up album and Dennis and I went to see, um, they were opening for the screaming trees and red cross. So after, during the show, I, I had just written a song called now and then. So I said to Dennis, I said, God, I have the background vocals in my head. I, we have to get the cow sales to do the, the background vocals. So we, we go backstage after the show, we kind of worm our way back and, Susan didn't believe I was in the Smithereens. And I said, well, here's the number of the studio. Give them a call because I think you guys would be perfect for this. And, and that's what happened. Uh, so we, we've been friends ever since. You know, who knows what's going to happen? People ask, do, who, do, are you going to have a permanent singer? And I said, nothing in life is permanent. You know, so we're just going to roll with the punches and, and move forward with however we can. We were always survivors. You know, my my wife, my poor wife got pancreatic cancer, so it's going to be seven years now. So she passed away. And, um, you know, she said to me, right. she said, live. We had 16 months, you know, to mull all this over. And uh, she said, you know, you got to live your best life. She said to me, there are people out there that love you. They love your music and and you'll you, you know, you you'll you'll be fine. She's she's telling me I'll be fine, you know. So, you know, and I've been dating a wonderful woman wow. now, uh, you know, for a couple of years. And, and, you know, this is life. It's just a continuation of life is what it is. And, yeah, there you go. Well, it's who you, it's who you are, too. I mean, the, you know, the band becomes who you are, but you're a musician and you're in a band and, you know, things change. And, but you get, and bravo to her for, for teeing that up for you, too. You know, that's awesome. I have a partner so generous yeah. and, and giving to... Despite the, the potential of the woe is me aspect of being terminally ill, but to have someone who gives you a, a recipe, gives you a list of things that you need to do to carry on is pretty rare, man. Well, we were teenagers when we uh, met and uh, you know, we were together for, uh, now I'm losing track, uh, probably 40, 39 years, you know, yeah. and my kids are in their 30s now and... Uh, Wow. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, you got to keep going, and and I'm trying to stay really healthy. I've been walking every day that I could can, and uh, you know, eating my fruits and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, you mentioned that, and and one the last time that I saw you guys with Pat was you guys were opening for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah. As I'm hearing you talk recently, I had the pleasure of seeing Mike Campbell in the Dirty Knobs, and he's out there kicking ass. I don't know if you've listened to any of his stuff. Yeah, I have his albums on vinyl. So good, man. And and he's another guy that's just, you know, uh, despite 
despite everything that he's been through with, with Tom and whatnot, I mean, uh, he's soldiering on. And I listened to him an interview not too long ago. He was talking about, you know, no, I want my band to be in the clubs. I want us to earn it. And and they've been doing it, you know, and which is which is really cool to see. I think um, I think that's that's the right that's the right spirit for sure. We're too old to change vocations at this point, right? I mean, kind of keep rocking. Mm-hmm. I'll be sixty three on Friday. <laughs> it's like, what am I going to do? Go back to college? Yeah. As a songwriter, um, what do you what do you enjoy most? Developing the chord sequence, the arrangement first, and then bringing words to it, or do you ever find words as you're driving along that you need to put music to? It, it it varies, and that has happened in reverse, where I come up with the title and then try to write music to it. But most of the time, it's a phrase or something that pops in my head. the The hook is usually what pops in my head first, the the chorus, and then then it goes. Then I got to figure out what kind of uh, verse is going to go with this, you know. So that's usually how it happens: music first, and on rare occasion, I did have lyrics first which which is an odd way to work but i had for me so i have done it both ways but most of the time it's it's the melody and and the the hook talking about an acapella melody you're not talking about something that came as a result no it, it happens when i pick up the guitar and then i'll just strike some weird chord and then it'll something in my brain will go off your hooks are masterful man i mean it they suck you right into the song, everything that I've ever heard. Well, thanks. I don't know if you heard you know the song Cut Flowers on our 11 album. I, I I came up with that whole thing, but I had these placement lyrics in there, and Pat put some great lyrics on there that I... So that was like a good collaboration because my lyrics were horrible on that one, and it, it just came out. Oh, no, the point about that one was Mike listened to the demo, and I had this opening riff. He said... He, that's two different songs and i said no he said well you could make two songs out of that and i said no mike i want this song to have as many hooks in it as possible you know and that that was the way i felt back then i i, I try to put more than one or two hooks in a song you know you, you got you got to oh and we had the honeys sing the background vocals on that on cut flowers the honeys uh marilyn wilson Marilyn and her sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diane. And I remember when they came to the studio, um, Marilyn, she had a Mercedes and her license plate had a, it was a abbreviation of good vibrations, like G, V, you know. And I said, I, I saw your license plate. And she said, yeah, that's the money I got for that song from Brian. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> With all the bad luck that I've had, I've had a lot of good luck. I mean, a lot of yeah. people also don't know that I've been working a day job for 19 years. So I was going to say something about that. I kept it pretty much secret. I mean, the story, I mean, it's not a, what, what happened. My neighbor across the street uh, was in the Twin Towers when it was hit in 9-11. So he made it. You know, he was oh. alive. I didn't know he was alive till four or five hours later because of the, all the mayhem that was going on. But a month after 9-11, it was October, uh, I, he was walking his dog, and I, I, we weren't doing too well then. We had maybe five shows on the books, and I was joking with him, not joking, again. You know, my wife was saying at the time, you know, you should really consider getting a job because you hardly have any shows, and there's no royalties, nothing coming in. It was a real down period. So... 
uh, my neighbor's walking his dog and I said, oh, you know, Betty says I should get a job. And he said, you know what? I, uh, somebody just left and uh, I could put you in. And I said, wait, I don't have a resume. I don't have any clothes. I'm like a t-shirt and jeans guy. And he says, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll get you going. So I, I went out and bought a, some shirts and some shoes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I go in there and they have me filing and this and that. And then I learned how to do this and that. And then I, I stayed there for 19 years. It was, it was, a. a, a um, a godsend because it was a steady wow. income. I got to keep my house during that period. Um, yeah. So health insurance, uh, and, and then, and then, you know, we, we, as we built up, like with the meet the smithereens, when we got all that press in the New York times, we started getting more gigs. And, um, so I was lucky that my neighbor was the senior VP because I got six weeks vacation. So I was able to record and tour. Nice. But you have to isolate that musical activity to those six weeks, or do you get grace from them? Yeah, I almost got fired during the Tom Petty thing because it was during quarter end and you're not allowed to take off from work. And I went above my boss's head to another uh, boss and said, look, I, I'm going to be playing hockey arenas and place with Tom Petty. And my a direct boss never heard of Tom Petty and doesn't know music at all. So, and I kind of kept quiet at work. I just sat in my cubicle, did my work. There were very few people that knew what I did. Some people knew that I was a musician, but they didn't know what to what capacity or whatever. And I liked that. I, I wanted to be anonymous. I just wanted to do my work. And there were times I'd come home from LA on a red eye, go into the parking lot, get, get in at sick, go to the parking lot, change my clothes and go to work. So it was rough. So, but anyway, it just ended during COVID because I was working at home and then they outsourced my job to India. And I was kind of glad because I'm going to be 65 in, in a month and I would have left anyway. But this way, uh, they gave me a year severance and uh, health insurance for a year. And now I'm going to go on Medicare. So oh, kind of worked out. Yeah. When I say life got in the way with mm. the Lost album and, or my solo stuff or whatever, it's because... I've been working a day job and the commute was three and a half hours every day, like for both ways. It sucked, but it, I did it for my family. I, well, good for you, man. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that, that do that and have to do it or, or choose to do it. I know I have a good friend named Todd Johnston. I don't know if you know Todd. Um, right. He's a drummer in the Georgia Satellites and has been for many years. And he, same thing for him, man, you know, uh, and, and, and I mean, it is what it is, you know, and respect to you for doing what you got to do for your family first. I mean, that's, well, that's what kept me going, you know, my kids and my wife time. And, and, you know, it was funny that my first office was across the street from Radio City. And I had played there with Lou Reed and with the Pretenders. And I'm looking outside the window. I'm like, God, what did I do with my life? You know what? We kept going. We, we, We kept going. That's awesome. And good for you guys and, and, and glad you glad you did. I have a friend friend and client and guitarist who works with the band Tiles and his day job, uh, every time I get a phone call from, from my caller ID says IRS and I think, oh really? <laughs> Oh, that's never one yeah. that <laughs> and he works for the IRS and uh, mm-hmm. and it's just used facilities management for the IRS. But so if I ever get audited, <laughs> can I get his number and maybe call off the dogs, man? I don't want to talk about it. Well thank you so much, Jim. We appreciate your time. Best of luck. 
to you guys continued success. Congratulations on everything you do. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.